Hi, I'm Angelique Edmonds, and welcome to Place Agency. We've brought together six extraordinary people to discuss three themes that contribute to the relationships between design process and social outcomes. The themes of social, trust, and diversity are discussed in separate episodes with each pair of conversation partners. This is a deep dive focused on the role of diversity in our nine-part series about agency and place. Our six conversation partners span Australia and the United Kingdom across both architectural practice and academia. They are Catherine Ramsey from Crocs and Ramsey, Samantha Donnelly from Private Practice and Teaching at UTS, Flora Samuel, the Royal Institute of British Architects Vice President of Research, Angela Dapper, a principal in the London studio of Grimshaw, and Emma Williamson and Nick Juniper from the Fulcrum Agency in Fremantle. I'd like to acknowledge that this program was made possible with support from the Alastair Swain Foundation. Find out more at alastairswainfoundation.org. As your host for the series, I've been working in this area for the last two decades with a passion for how we can elevate design for social impact. My practice work has consulted for local, state and federal governments in parallel with teaching over the past decades, most recently at University of South Australia. A lot of my contribution to these conversations is informed by my own practice research presented in my 2020 book, Connecting People, Place and Design. In this episode, you'll hear from Flora Samuel, who is Professor at the University of Reading and former head of Sheffield University School of Architecture. She is the author of Why Architects Matter and was the first Royal Institute of British Architects Vice President for Research and is the lead author of Reba's Social Value Toolkit for Architects, published in 2020. And you'll also hear from Angela Dapper, who is a principal in the London office of Grimshaw Architects. In addition to her architectural work, Angela is a keen advocate for diversity. She's Grimshaw's chair for their Umbrella Diversity Group, leading diversity initiatives across their office. She's also a Royal Institute of British Architects London councillor, an advisor to the Reba Architects for Change, and a contributor to the Mayor of London's Diversity Panel. And in 2020, Angela won the Women in Construction and Engineering Award for Best Woman in Architecture. You'll find full bios for all of us in the show notes. But before we dive into hearing these conversations, I just want to clarify that as this is a deep dive which was recorded after an introductory conversation, here you are joining a conversation midway through. Whilst this can be listened to as a standalone episode, as it's a series, you may find reference to previous conversations. For example, when I refer to their use of the term sustainability, I'm referring to the way they use this term in the conversations around trust, which can be listened to in their deep dive episode on trust. And now, it's time to share with you this enriching conversation with Flora and Angela, which I really hope you'll enjoy. I'd like to hope as we now will move into the third part of our discussion to do a deep dive really more into diversity and increasing participation and power sharing. I'd like to hope that all of these would sit under the social sustainability part that you're talking about because I'm not sure if it's just my observation in our conversation but the number of times that you have both referred to sustainability agendas, I've assumed in the context of how you've said it that you've meant environmental sustainability. 
But it's interesting. It's interesting. It feels like in the UK, the word sustainability is used in these contexts to mean environmental exclusively. But it's interesting here, I think in Australia, I think sustainability is increasingly seen to be encompassing social sustainability as well. And it, it might be I have a little bias on it, given that social sustainability is the kind of focus of my research. But even in 2014, I delivered CPD for the Institute of Architects here on social sustainability, saying that like in the 70s and 80s, architects could specialise in environmental studies if they wanted to. It was like a value add to their work. And now it's become mainstream. You can't not. And I'd said back in 2014 in this CPD to lots of architects, social accountability, social sustainability is at that same tipping point. At the moment, some people specialise in it, thinking that that's a bit a little added extra, but very soon it's going to be mainstream, part of the main deal. And it feels like you're suggesting in the UK that's definitely coming. And yet it's having, it seems to be coming with a different language. I think not. The socialism doesn't sound like it's nested in sustainability in the same way. It sounds like it's nested in a very separate social value. I think there's blurring. I think there's a blurring here. The UK Green Building Council has produced a beautiful diagram of what is social value. In a sense, social value, part of the whole thing, which is sustainability, which is social, economic and environment. But all those things are also nested within it as well. That's why I like the diagram, because it somehow shows that you can't look at social value without the other things. And I suspect, I can't really talk for, for Angela here, but when I say that local authorities are only doing sustainability assessments, that's just environmental sustainability in their sustainability investment. But my kind of sustainability is all three. So it's very difficult to differentiate between different kinds of sustainability. Sustainability as being practiced at the moment is very lacking in the social, I would say. Sustainability as we go forward, hopefully will be characterised by this triple bottom line approach. The word sustainability is interesting because I was using it in terms of environmental sustainability, which is funny because I'm glad you picked that up because I've been trying not to do that. Because we we do look at the UN. <laughs> I had a whole discussion about well, this. It wasn't last meant week. as a critique. Of, <laughs> no, no, no. I do apologise. It wasn't a critique. It was more just me trying to understand the way language is used differently in different places. We do use it all the time to talk about environmental sustainability. And with COP26 coming up, there's a lot of discussions around sustainability, and it's all in focus of environmental sustainability. But we do, and, and this is probably where it's slightly confusing, we do talk about it much more holistically and relating everything back to the, the UN sustainability goals. There's a big portion of it around social value, around diversity, communities. It's the whole holistic picture. And that's what we're striving for, is that really that bigger picture, which is why I'm glad you're, you're talking about diversity, because I think that's a real that's a real part of actually sustainability, or it's a real part of the climate crisis and how we'll get how we'll get response a response or an answer to how we can move forward with that and a response to our the social value in our cities and really making them viable and really making them work. Yeah, so it is for us. It's really holistic. It's a, sustainability is really holistic approach, and actually, and it's funny because we, yeah, this discussion that I had last week about why are we using this word, even the word sustainability is a funny word because it kind of, it, it almost reinforces that we're just trying to sustain what we have now, whereas actually we're trying to go beyond that. It's a really awkward term, but we bound it around quite quite freely. Thank you both for clarifying. In terms of setting a little bit of context for our diversity conversation. I wanted to begin by acknowledging that it's well documented that social outcomes are often management related and for that reason it helps to have users or occupants to be close allies in the design process and we've talked about that a little bit already. 
but often it creates a level of complexity which some architects are hesitant to engage with or, as you pointed out, in some cases they may not have the skill set. That whole nothing about us without us mantra is really important here about um, the number of voices that decisions should not be made about people without their consent or without them being part of the process of the decision-making. So I wanted to ask you both initially about what your thoughts are on the importance of power sharing and increasing the diverse participation as a critical ingredient for social outcomes. And Angela, I understand that you're a very keen advocate for diversity as Grimshaw's chair for their Umbrella Diversity Group, leading diversity initiatives across the office, and that in 2016 you led the process um, through which Grimshaw Architects created an eight-part plan to improve their gender equality and gender pay gap, and that also as a contributor, as we've discussed, to the Mayor of London's Supporting Diversity Handbook. So I anticipate that your views on diversity and the importance of power sharing and engagement would be considered, and I invite you to share some of them with us. What are your thoughts on how important this is in creating greater social outcomes? For me, it's absolutely key, and getting the right voices in the room is absolutely important and integral to, to, to social value and engagement. The, and I have been working on it for a really long time, and, but it's an ongoing, it's ongoing work. And, I, and it's not because we're, we're not progressing, it's because that it's constantly changing. And I think we need to really understand that the landscape that we work is constantly changing as we move through the years and in terms of who, who we engage with. But I have, in terms of power and power structures. I'm anti-power. <laughs> and I know that kind of doesn't, a traditional, particularly large um, practices are really built on people progressing through to a seniority and then the seniority level makes all the decisions. I don't think it's sustainable anymore. I think that people will be, everything is changing so much in terms of our environment, what we need, what we see we need, and even uh, the new kind of lessons we're learning day on, day in, day out. So we really need to be much more agile in our thinking and to do that, we much need to be much more diverse. The, the youngest person in the firm could have the best ideas. Why are we not listening to them? Why are we not from the middle? It's a really, for me, power is a really interesting aspect of, of the way architecture is constructed. And I think we're, we're starting to see, I think, the end of these kind of power structures in architecture and it becoming much more democratic. I really like, I've only been in Grimshaw for a couple of years, actually. And part of the reason that I moved, I was at Denton Court Marshall before, I um, moved to Grimshaw because of the democratic structure that they have. It allows everyone to have a say in, in what's happening. But we also really try and get the right voices in the room so we can hold ourselves to account. And I think this is really important. So it doesn't matter what age someone is. I think age is irrelevant. It's about having different perspectives in the room to really get the answers and really challenge ourselves. And the same in our projects. We are starting to get clients come forward and say, okay, this is what we expect from you as a consultant that we work with. We want 50-50 gender equality. We want 30% minority ethnic. We want, we want a split across and we want to see what you're doing for diversity because we can see how this impacts our projects. And this is a real challenge for us as architects. And I welcome this challenge, actually, because it really shakes up what people see as what they need to do for diversity. Um, because now it's coming from clients as well. People can't sit still and not do anything anymore. That's not an option. But, and I think we've raised this slightly earlier, is we still need to look at access. We are a privileged profession. Like how do we include access to the broader access into our profession? And as much as we do have support some students, we have some apprenticeships, it feels too small in terms of bridging. There needs to be a lot to be done in order to create the profession that we need 
that can create the designs that we need. So there's a lot more work to be done on this. But for me, it's an integral approach to social equity, social value, equity generally across the across the communities and designing from the community upwards, having it really grounded in a, in a social and cultural context. Thank you. Thanks for that response. Yeah, you've raised lots of interesting points, which I think we might dive into a bit further. And Flora, in asking you, I pulled out that in your book, you have argued that the architectural design studio is different from other forms of design studio, largely because of its subject matter and the vast range of issues it deals with and the spatial juxtapositions that it tests and the diversity of people that are engaged in its negotiations. And most importantly, the scalar leaps that are characteristic of architectural design thinking. So, that level of diversity is already inherent within the project and the process of the work that happens and that happens in the studio. And you said then, and quoting Hewlett, that companies must develop and deploy two, time, two types of diversity, inherent, meaning more women and people of colour to make up the workforce, but also acquired, meaning leaders behave inclusively to foster a speak up culture that unlocks the broad spectrum of perspectives and toolkits, and that companies that do that outperform others. And I feel like in some ways what Angela just said is almost exactly what you were advocating for in the book, as I heard it, that there's these two types, the the more diverse workforce, but then also the um, acquired diversity, which is about encouraging more voices to speak up. With that complexity of process, which you advocate is distinct to an architectural studio, what are your thoughts, Flora, on the importance of diversity and power sharing when we're trying to support outcomes for greater social value and social connection? I argued in the book that that a design studio, the thing that we're taught in architecture schools and we enact in practice, is a really the unique the unique research methodology of architects, and it's an amazing opportunity for bringing lots of voices together in a very democratic way. And I think that we need to make more of that and promote it across the field because it's starting to be used by other disciplines in quite a self-conscious way. In terms of practices, I think that we're starting to see more and more practices which are becoming employee-owned. We're seeing practices that are going for B core status, which is really... So we're really starting to see practices looking at their own processes and making themselves into something more democratic. And I'm identifying a particular thing that's going on at the moment, which is whereby you've got the old school who started up the practice and you've got the younger people people moving up who are much more digitally enabled. And there's a cultural clash, I would say, happening in a lot of UK practices around really embracing the digital, which is going to be a very interesting thing to see. And on that note, I should say that data is really, we have to be very careful about how we use data. Uh, And I do recommend reading Caroline Criado Perez's book, Invisible Women, if you haven't read it, because the data that's been built into our cities and our buildings is generally based on a 70 kilo Caucasian man. And we have to be really wary of that, because in the seamless technological experiences that are going to be going forward in, in our buildings and places, it's going to be very scary if we're not going to see these political agendas that are being slurped in along the way. Obviously, a tremendous amount has to be done within practices to make them more inclusive. And I would say from my experiences as an educator, that students hemorrhage out of education and don't go into practice because of the terrible levels of pay in architecture practice. And they cannot afford to be paid that little when they've got such enormous student debts. So that's a real fundamental thing about driving, getting practices valued properly and getting people paid properly too. It's a fabulous point. I wanted to ask you about examples of where you think that um, diversity is being done well. 
And Angela, I note that you last year won the 2020 Women in Construction and Engineering Award, for which we must congratulate you. That's for Best Woman in Architecture of the Year. It's a momentous achievement and recognition, so well done for that. I wanted to ask you, therefore, in your hotel and commercial projects, can you tell us about any aspects that in trying to work through how diversity can be more easily reflected in those sort of commercial projects? I think commercial projects are an interesting interesting sector because I think they're changing quite quickly. Offices are not what they were one year ago, two years ago, and our expectations of them have changed. They need to be now be better than our houses to get us out of, you know, we're still often in our bedrooms here in the UK. To get us out of our bedrooms back into the office, it, they need to be good. And I know Flora's mentioned the ESG requirements that a lot of clients are coming with and a lot of pension funds, et cetera. So they are, there's an expectation that the office structure itself can fulfill some of the, particularly the health and well-being aspects of what people are expecting. So I, the office sector at the moment has to be really reflective of what people want from office space. And so this is, again, is where it needs to be grounded. So diversity is so important. It needs to be grounded in its context. It needs to be grounded in the people that want to engage with the buildings. Otherwise, they're not going to get, for one, they won't get tenants full stop, but they won't get the right tenants that need to take on board those projects. So actually, we're finding that some of the office clients are actually some of the most kind of responsive because they can see they need to, they need to do these projects quite quick. A lot of the developers now are keeping the projects, so they need to tenant them as well. And so they're really caring about the end users. And I think this is a real shift from the build it, sell it type mentality. People are holding it for a little while and then and then seeing the impact and what the tenants actually want. So I think this is a really good example of where diversity in projects is actually providing response. So it is they are creating spaces which are people want to be in. There is a love and a, and, a, and a joy of using these spaces. They are responsive to the different communities or the different larger and smaller companies that want to use them. They're much more resilient in this kind of economy. So for me, that's a really interesting sector um, to be working in. But I think Grimshaw's another really good sector. Grimshaw does a lot of infrastructure works. For me, this is where social value really needs to come to the fore because infrastructure is all about public space. It's about engagement. It's about use. And this is where you can't go wrong. And this is an area where diversity is absolutely key in terms of who we have in our team, who we're engaging with, who the consultants are. It's a massive mix. I don't think we're quite getting it right. There's a lot that we need to learn, but, but this is where it's absolutely key because it's not an internal project. It, it's so open and it's so public that it needs to be a responsible and appropriate design. I was really wanting to finish on asking how you think designers, what you think designers can do to overcome and catalyze progress in building greater diversity and sharing of power. I know that the way I've phrased that is not necessarily, Angela, how you would see it. But what I mean is in terms of being more inclusive of lots of voices having equal weight, because I'm conscious that if we have a more relational approach, as that sounds like it's advocating for, that it will really disrupt a lot of business as usual. There are many places that aren't ready for that. And an approach like that sometimes prompts questions like, how did the project even come to exist? Who framed the aims? What was their agenda? Is that what the end users really need? Can designers really risk this kind of disruption? What if we lose the project because we've asked too tr- the questions we're asking are too tricky? How do we lower the perception of risk with disruption as opposed to seeing disruption as an opportunity 
with the potential to create a more meaningful outcome, which is fulfilling for end users and for the architecture or design team involved. We, I think we, we come up to these barriers of risk perception. And I wonder what you think designers can do or architects as well, but specifically designers, because often we're redesigning a system in order to then practice architecture within it. What do you think that architectural designers can do to try to support such outcomes? I think one of the one of the first things is definitely going to be around advocacy, just making sure that we are amplifying voices that we do already have, We're making sure that people that are speaking on behalf of projects are much more diverse than they are. So we can have a diverse outward approach. I, I think you're right. It can be quite disruptive when we talk about diversity. And I think there's architecture is still uh, over 70% white male in the UK. And, I, and so there is an apprehension around diversity. Why do we need to do it? What's the problem? But for me, it's uh, really when we talk about inclusion, we're making the profession better for it. What we're trying to do is we're trying to support everyone equally. So we see over the progression of people's careers that as they get older and as they progress through their careers, Quite often we are losing women and um, people of multiple ethnicity at a higher rate than we are of white male. And we need to put in different support structures. And that's really what we're looking at is how do we support people through their careers to make sure we're actually offering equal opportunities. So it's not about taking away opportunities. It's about providing more support so everyone has equal opportunity. And I think that's how we need to look at it. It's more about inclusivity. It's not about long hours or hard, high energy offices. It's about being inclusive so we can make sure that we're supporting everyone throughout their careers. And that's how we can maintain the diversity. So we are, if we are looking at promotions, it's not disproportionate in terms of, oh, I want that person because they look like me or I like their background. It's, it's actually putting forward the right people. So it's kind of challenging ourselves to remove our own biases. But equally, we need to make sure that we have people, the right people available within our profession to allow this to happen and support them through it, which is all the way from access to education and support through education. So we are having a pipeline that is much more. Flora, did you want to add anything around how we could see disruption as an opportunity rather than get embroiled in this idea of it's so risky that it gets poo-pooed or that we lose momentum for the for changes? I think what Angela just said about advocacy is absolutely right. I think the disruption is an amazing opportunity. There's a real gap now because social risk is becoming recognised as incredibly powerful. And the social value agenda is combining with the health agenda and the health outcomes of good places is really increasingly being started to be recognised. I think that as designers, I think you have to be always pushing back at clients or whoever you're talking to, offering new ways of doing things. Many of the clients we've spoken to said that our, the architects they spoke to never asked them certain questions, never off, offered opportunities to think about certain things. So I think that architects have got quite a low opinion of what their clients might actually want and could potentially be a bit more clever about that. And I think the cleverest practices are actually going out there doing research on clients and with clients because it's a much nicer way to meet clients doing research than it is sweating over a hot pitching session or something like that. But we did do a, a session on developing research in practice. And I think the asking practitioners what they wanted, and they came up with this strap line, which was make space for ideas. And I think just making space for ideas, all different kinds of ideas for innovation, ideas for the people who are using the building, just make space for ideas in the programs of things and listening as well. I think these are things that we 
really have to do and to start and always keep in mind developing an evidence base because without an evidence base and even with an evidence base, you've got very little chance of being um, heard within policy and local authorities. So I think for me, I, I left practice because I actually found it mind-numbingly boring and lacking in uh, any kind of intellectual sort of, not that I'm a very theoretical person, but <clears throat> it was very prosaic. It was during a recession, I have to admit. And it was impossible having kids and being in practice as well. We've got to, I think what Angela mentions about cultures of offices, we've got to be zero tolerant on excluding practices around long hours culture and things like that. And we also, we have, we have this enormous gender disparity around pay. Practices have got to be revealing and discussing and debating and, and, and uh, rejecting these kind of practices. Uh, going forward. But ultimately, it's tie- it's making space to talk and debate and to think, and rather than just keep on producing buildings. And that concludes this deep dive in the nine-part series. I'd like to acknowledge that this program was made possible with support from the Alastair Swain Foundation. Find out more at alastairswainfoundation.org. Technical production was done by Andrew Limpenning of Big Boys Productions. And if you enjoyed this episode, please check out the rest of the series, share with your friends, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find out more of my work at schoolforcreatingchange.com and in my 2020 book, Connecting People, Place and Design.